Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Oncology. In this activity, listen to two hemato-oncology experts from the USA, Dr. Matthew Matasar and Dr. Amit Kumar Mehta, as they respond to questions from the oncology, hemato-oncology and CAR T-cell therapy communities. Pre-canvassed questions were gathered from healthcare professionals involved in managing patients with mantle cell lymphoma. The questions cover current treatment strategies for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma, MCL, including the role of CAR T-cell therapy, formulating practical strategies for the management of CAR T-cell-associated toxicities and CAR T-cell relapse in patients with relapsed refractory MCL, and future considerations for optimising the use of CAR T-cell therapies in MCL. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Bristol Myers Squibb. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. Hello, my name is Dr. Matthew Matasar from the Rutgers Cancer Institute in New Jersey in partnership with RWJ Barnabas Health in the United States. And I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Amit Kumar Mehta of the O'Neill Comprehensive Cancer Center in Alabama, also the United States. Today, we're going to be discussing relapsed and refractory mantle cell lymphoma, some of the practicalities of managing CAR T-cell therapy, as well as considering future strategies aimed at further improving the use of these therapies in our daily clinical practice. In this first segment, we're going to be exploring current treatment strategies for relapsed or refractory mantle cell lymphoma and the role of CAR T-cell therapy in the treatment of this condition. So first, it's important to point out that relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma can be a heterogeneous illness, but is often not a favorable uh, illness. And we understand that there's a number of high-risk baseline features that can indicate a poor prognosis for patients with relapsed or refractory mantle cell lymphoma. There are a number of such poor prognostic indicators that have been identified, including the second-line MIPI or MIPI or the S-MIPI, the rate of proliferation of tumors as measured by key 67 or MIB1 with a proliferative index of greater than or equal to 50% being adverse, certain key genomic alterations, including mutations of the um, P53 gene, as well as certain morphologic characteristics, including blastoid features. While these are certainly high-risk features, they are also not uncommon, unfortunately, in our patients with relapsed or refractory mantle cell lymphoma. The good news is that there are a number of treatments that are NCCN-approved and uh, FDA-approved in the treatment of patients with relapsed or refractory disease. In the second-line setting, we have two BTK inhibitors, including both acalbrutinib and xanabrutinib, both of which are highly active in this patient population with overall response rates of just over 80%. Complete response rates do seem to be slightly higher with xanabrutinib than with acalbrutinib at 80 versus 40%, along for cross-trial comparisons. Lenalidomide and rituximab, or R-squared as we call it in the biz, certainly has activity and is a consideration for such patients in the relapsed refractory setting as well. In the third line setting, however, our armamentarium further broadens with the inclusion of both CAR T-cell therapy in the form of Brexacabagene autolucil, or Brexacel, uh, as well as the uh, uh, non-covalent uh, inhibitor uh, of BTK, pertubrutinib. Brexacel very active, of course, in patients with relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma, with an overall response rate of 9 in 10 and a CR rate of 7 in 10, and a median progression-free survival of over two years. Pertubrutinib has activity as well with an overall response of 60%, a lower CR rate of 20%, but a median duration of response also approaching two years in early studies. 
So there's a lot of options that we have in this patient population, but that also leads to a lot of questions. So I'd like to turn now to you, Dr. Mehta, um, and pose some questions that we've received from practicing oncologists to get your insights into how to manage uh, patients with relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. The first question that we received is that uh, as a community oncologist, I'd like to understand more about which patient and disease characteristics I, they should focus on when considering whether to refer patients to a specialist center for further assessment. What is the framework for referral for CAR T-cell therapy from a community setting to a specialist center? Dr. Mehta. Th thank you, Matt. Um, and you uh, gave a very good background about mantle cell lymphoma. Um, and you are right. Mantle cell lymphoma is very heterogeneous. We can, you know, hypothetically divide mantle cell lymphoma in three categories, you know, low-grade, high-grade, and intermediate-grade. You very nicely laid out the foundation that those who are pleomorphic, those who have TP53 mutations, blastoid variant, those are the ones which are very aggressive. As such, we all know that mantle cell lymphoma is very rare, and some of the high-end treatment like transplant as well as CAR T-cell therapy are kind of integral and a main part of the treatment. Now, you know, there are a lot of questions about the eligibility of the patients for BMT or transplant or CAR T-cell therapy. Most of the time, I say that the, the beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. But I think the academic centers, you know, they have way more experience uh, in analyzing and assessing these patients, whether they're eligible for autologous stem cell transplant or corticel therapy. And as you know that for corticel therapy, there are many steps involved, including in the U.S., you have to go through the insurance approval as well as single case agreement. So there is a lot of lag period for these patients to go through CAR-T. So if we start the process earlier, that is the best. So in my opinion, first is rare malignancy like mandocell lymphoma, that the collaboration should start way early, maybe it's, you know, right at the time of diagnosis. Second, especially for those high-risk patients, right? Those who are having high uh, MIP index, those who have TP53 mutations, those who are pleomorphic or blastoid variant. And the, the fourth one that I would add, and I would definitely like your opinion, is those who are early relapses, especially in relapse setting. So those high-risk patients especially needs to be referred earlier to the advanced treatment centers so that they can initiate the process you know, earlier, like for CAR-T as well as the transplant. I mean, I love your answer. You know, mm -hmm. I think that there's a misperception that for relapse refractory mantle cell lymphoma that, you, that these patients should just stay in a community setting until it's third line and then they're CAR eligible and then send them at that point. But there's so much evolution, not just in our management of second-line patients, but even of questions about optimal first-line therapy with the emergence of triangle, but then the subtraction of ibrutinib from the market, who needs a transplant, what about MRD? There's, so, there's such rapid evolution of our understanding and of standards of care that earlier partnering between academic and community programs, I think, really serves our patients best. That's true. Let's go to the second question. This is another question from an oncologist, uh, this one working at a specialist center. And this doc asked, what did the results of the pivotal trial with Brexacel show? And how did the data compare with other classes of drugs that we use to treat patients with relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma? And uh, specifically, do the data align well with your um, and our real life experience uh, using Brexacel, you know, in real life? So Brexacel is a CAR-T cell therapy. And I like to highlight here that Brexacel the CAR-T cell therapy targets CD19. Uh, conventionally, we have used 
CD20 as a target in all across B-cell lymphoma. Brexacel was evaluated in Zuma 2 study where um, uh, patients with relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma were enrolled on this phase 2 study. And all these patients, they had, they had seen BTK inhibitor. Majority of them, they had uh, ibrutinib. Some of them, they had acalabrutinib, but they were exposed to BTK inhibitors. And we know historically, patients with mantle cell lymphoma who have progressed on BTK inhibitor, their outcome is not as great. These patients went through a standard process of uh, CAR T-cell. So they had collection. Uh, there was optional bridging, and the bridging was only steroids. They did not use chemotherapy as a bridging. That's one of the key differentiating factor between uh, the other CAR T-cell product. And then they got standard lymphodepletion therapy followed by CAR T-cell infusion. The primary endpoint of this uh, trial was overall response rate. And you showed that data that the overall response rate was 91% and complete response was 68%. Now, we also have long-term data of Zuma2, which actually confirmed that the, the response rate stayed. There were no new indication for the neurotoxicity or other side effects that we see with the CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, if you compare this um, in third-line setting, we don't have a great competitor because it is, you know, there is no standard treatments out there. But you can see the reference point is BTK inhibitor, but they're in second-line setting rather than third-line setting. So we don't have a great competitor in third-line setting. But in a real-world analysis, which we are also going to talk about, that um, the Brexacel was also seen in BTK-naive, not a huge cohort, a small cohort, and that's actually a little bit better than second-line BTK inhibitor. But we don't have a great data uh, in, in that setting. But in a third-line setting, uh, Brexacel has great responses, uh, great complete responses as impressive progression-free survival, median duration response, as well as overall survival. And to the second part of that question, what's been your experience in, in using Brexacel in real patients as opposed to trial-eligible patients? So in my experience in real life, um, and that was also reflected in two real-world analysis of Brexacel. And interestingly, in both the real-world analysis, the majority of the patients, about two-thirds to even 80% of the patients, would not have been eligible for Brexacel. So these patients were really sick like a real-world population. The outcome was actually similar to Zuma2. Not only that, the rates of the side effects were a little bit lower compared to Zuma2. And part of the reason that in, you and I know in a clinical trial we are bound by the protocol, and sometimes you cannot pull the trigger with tocilizumab or steroids earlier. But in real-world setting, people have used that earlier. And earlier intervention clearly showed benefit in terms of reduction of the CRS and ICANS. So importantly, in real-world population also, Brexacel data was almost similar to Zuma2, including overall response rate, complete response rate, as well as the toxicity rates. That's what I see in my practice too. Let's go on to the next question. Um, another oncologist asks, I'm interested in knowing whether I should be offering bridging therapy to my patients with mantle cell lymphoma while they wait for treatment with CAR T-cell therapy um, at a specialist center. And if so, uh, what type of therapy should I consider? And you already mentioned that, that Zuma 2 really was quite stringent in what it allowed for bridging. How about real-world decision-making on it? 
So that, that's, that's a great point uh, about bridging therapy. So Zuma 2 did not allow, only steroids were allowed as a bridging therapy. But if you see the lysocell data um, in Transcend NHL001 study, they allowed bridging therapy. The common practice in, in real-world setting is we want to make sure that these patients uh, actually can get the CAR T-cell therapy after collection. And that period is very, very critical and vital. And we all want that the disease or cancer or mantle cell lymphoma stays under control. Because if it gets out of control, patient, patient gets very sick, and we are completely off our trajectory to get the CAR T-cell therapy. The second part is, you know, um, there are a lot of theories out there that cytoreduction might help both improving the overall response rate, um, probably progression-free survival, but most importantly, what I'm interested in is reducing the side effect of CRS and ICANS. Now, it's, um, it's a, a little bit tailored approach. It could be different for different patients. Um, sometimes, um, if the patients are on, say, BTK inhibitor and they're slowly progressing, you can give them a break. They, can, they, they collect, and then you can continue BTK inhibitor afterwards. Sometimes you can just use steroids. Sometimes you can just get by with the radiation. Or sometimes you want an aggressive therapy like uh, you know, cytarabine. Sometimes if they have a CNS involvement, you might want to have a CNS-directed therapy. So therefore, I think the whole bridging question, as a matter of fact, the whole process of CAR-T is so complex. And that's why I want to emphasize that earlier collaboration is the key. Earlier referral is the key. And it's actually a hand-to-hand -hand approach to manage the patient to get to the CAR-T. Let's go on to the next question. So this question, again, from a practicing oncologist uh, reads, my patient, 76 years old, was diagnosed with classical mantle cell lymphoma two years ago, treated with BR, or we're talking about benamustine, uh, progressed after 11 months, so early relapsing, as you were speaking of earlier, and then treated with acalbrutinib. He has since progressed following eight months of treatment with transformation into a pleomorphic variant of mantle cell with a high proliferative index here, 62%, <laughs> but a preserved performance status with an ECOG of one. Genomic analysis was performed and revealed a mutation in CAMT2D. So this is a complex single patient. So in, in approaching such a patient, how do you think through the treatment algorithm? This is kind of a real-world patient that you will see. But, you know, the outline, uh, the best for this patient would be CAR T-cell therapy if he can make it to, right? And therefore, I was saying, uh, you know, important part is when he was on ACALA and we knowing, knowing the fact that this patient relapsed early, he's a high-risk patient, that is when the referral should have started. So by now, he's, he should have been already in the system. And when we see that he's progressing on ACALA, that's when the CAR T-cell process starts. And again, the importance that, you know, I'm coming back to this collaboration is the fact that it's a process to get even CAR-T approved, right? You know, the insurance verification, single case agreements, and then you schedule a collection. So I think there are a lot of moving parts in that. But this patient should, uh, if he can make it, should get to the CAR-T. Now, again, you know, uh, as we discussed in a, in a, in a prior uh, question, that as he is relapsing so early, within 24 months, I assume, even though his performance status is good, uh, that he will probably need some sort of bridging. You know, definitely like to know more about the disease locations so that I can pick which bridging therapy to use. But that would be the natural uh, to proceed with CAR-T. Let's go on to the fifth question. 
Uh, here we see I'm a hematologist working in a specialist center treating patients with CAR T-cell therapy. So somebody who's on the academic side of the street. Uh, can you update me on some of the latest developments in novel treatments for managing high-risk mantle cell lymphoma, including optimal sequencing strategies and even emerging therapies? So this is a you know area uh, of uh, great unmet need uh, in mantle cell lymphoma, right? Um, but still, in this high-risk popula patient population for academic centers, I highly suggest that we open clinical trials which are actually targeting this high-risk patient population. That will expand our knowledge. Uh, we don't yet know the proper sequencing of, of this patient population, right? So I think uh, having a good clinical trial in this setting, exploring novel agents or sequencing questions would be better. But at this point, uh, still, I would say that the BTK inhibitor use earlier and get to the QRT is the best approach in high-risk patient population. And there is a lot of research ongoing, right, Ahmed, in terms of developing novel therapies. We have novel CAR T-cell therapy being developed. Um, obviously, Brexacel is the approved agent. You mentioned Transcend earlier, evaluating uh, Lysacel in the treatment of mantle cell. But there's also a lot of non-CAR T treatments that I think are um, interesting and promising. It, when I look at our own research portfolio at Rutgers, I think that the drugs that I'm most um, optimistic about are the bispecifics, um, particularly glofitimab, as well as other approaches at targeting BTK. You know, we have covalent, we have non-covalent, but there's a third class of agents that are being developed that are promising both in mantle cell as well as CLL um, called BTK degraders. So these are drugs that I think um, offer us potential promise and hope either for post-CAR T or additional you know, pre or bridging type options. So there's a lot of work both in developing new treatments as well as finding new, new combinations that I think really pave a way towards the future. In this segment, we're going to be discussing unraveling the practicalities of CAR T cell therapy for mantle cell lymphoma in the clinic with a focus on toxicities and salvage strategies. There are clearly toxicities that have been well established and associated with CAR T cell therapy both in general as well as specifically in mantle cell lymphoma, as well as recognized risk factors for experiencing such side effects. There are both short-term and long-term toxicities, as it's important both for CAR-T specialists as well as community oncologists to be aware of. In the short term, we really divide the toxicities of CAR-T cell therapy into three categories, the first being cytokine release syndrome, or CRS, which is associated with a higher rate of CAR-T cell expansion, as well as a higher uh, disease burden at time of reinfusion. There's neurotoxicity, or ICANS, which also has factors associated with it, including how severe CRS is being experienced by a patient, as well as underlying disease burden, baseline inflammatory state, as well as if patients have pre-existing neurological conditions. And the third would be sort of myelosuppression or hematologic, including cytopenias and um, immunosuppression. And these are associated with both the severity of CRS at ICANS, higher disease burden, as well as baseline cytopenias or immunodeficiency. That's sort of the short-term picture. In the long-term, we worry about patients experiencing persistent myelosuppression and B-cell ablation. And this can be manifested as persistent cytopenias, as infections, either with or without hypogammaglobin anemia, and even concerns regarding a second malignancy. So with that as the preamble, Ahmed, I, I, I'd love to take this subject and, and present questions that we've received from oncologists to you in, in this area as well. 
And, and the first such question we were asked, which patients with mantle cell lymphoma are most at risk for serious toxicities following CAR T-cell therapy? And from the perspective of a community oncologist, when patients return to community care following treatment at a CAR T center, which toxicities should they be monitoring for? And, and how should they go about such monitoring? Matt, I think the area of toxicity is kind of evolving. If we can predict that this, this group of patients or this uh, patients with this characteristic would have a high risk of CRS, we have a rough idea about that, but we don't have a very good predictive score to kind of outline that these patients would develop CRS or ICANS. That would be very beneficial, and that predictive score would guide them that these patients can safely be administered patient, uh, outpatient CAR-T. But we don't have, at this point, a robust predictive score. But there are features, and one of the features is, you know, those patients who have very aggressive raging disease, so I describe, you know, bulky disease, those who have elevated LDH, they're symptomatic, you know, they have progressed within 24 months of their initial treatment, those are the patients that potentially have a high risk of developing uh, the, the CRS and ICANS. Now, you know, what we have seen is that CD28 products, uh, like Brexicel, has a little bit higher rates of CRS and ICANS, and there are mitigating strategies that people have used, like prophylactic dexamethasone and others, to kind of lower the rates of CRS and ICANS. But still, you know, it's, it's a hit and miss, uh, and I think every patient uh, should be monitored very closely, preferably in patient for the initial phase. The other point that I always bring it up, and we discussed that patient of 76 years, right? So those patients who are on the older side, they might have more comorbidities, right? They might have heart issues, they might have kidney problems. So if they have other comorbid conditions, there is a little bit of higher risk of that they would be actually are more prone to develop CRS and ICANS, or they cannot handle CRS and ICANS even early grade. So they might need intense monitoring in the hospital. So I think that is a key factor, that one is the patient itself without lymphoma characteristic, and the second is the characteristic of, of uh, the mantis lymphoma, which would actually predict which patients will develop more CRS and ICANS. Now for the second question, that's why the partnership that I've been highlighting throughout this you know, discussion is important because now we have the patients going back to their primary oncologist for a follow-up. For the immediate post-CAR-T setting or immediately after CAR-T infusion inpatient setting, those patients are mainly monitored for CRS, ICANS. Many of them could develop some cytopenias and infections. But when they go out in the community, and you alluded to in your, in your, in your slide, that hypogammaglobulinemia is important, cytopenia is important, infections are the central theme. And of course, at the same time, you have to monitor and make sure that they don't have relapse, you know. So those are the factors that this, uh, this patients, when they go back to their primary oncologist, they will be monitoring. Now, each center has different prophylaxis regimen, but majority of these patients are also on prophylactic antibiotics, you know, for, for the different, you know, period, six months or a year, post-CAR T setting. And that is not only because of the CAR T induced cytopenias or hypogammaglobulinemia, but they also got lymphodepletion. So fludarabine and cytoxin, they could also be immunosuppressive. And not to forget that these patients might have seen many lines of therapy before. So I think there are so many factors in this setting. But again, as I was highlighting throughout this my presentation, it's 
you know, partnership and collaboration is the key in this in this patient population. So, so I'd like to expand on that a little bit. Um, you know, you made the point that these patients are indeed returning to community-based settings. I think that's really important to understand that these patients should be expected to return to their primary oncologist. But when they go back, we need to be effective partners and collaborators, and we need to communicate what are the recommendations regarding ongoing prophylaxis in terms of antimicrobial prophylaxis. We need to understand that these patients are at risk for persistent hypogammalaminemia. And whereas in other situations, we may not care so much if a patient has an IgG level of of 450 or 500 if they're not having recurrent infections, this is a situation where we do recommend prophylactic IVIG to maintain a nadir IgG of greater than 400 to reduce the risk of severe life-threatening infections. So there are some nuances here that we need to effectively communicate to help community oncologists take over care and continue their prior relationship with these patients. That is right. That is right. The next question we received was from another practicing oncologist asking, a number of my patients who have been treated with CAR T-cell therapy present in my community clinic several months later with prolonged neutropenia and or fever. What should I do in such cases? It's a, a growing concern with post-CAR T setting about cytopenias and how to evaluate it. And, you know, there are many factors, as we discussed. It could be because of the lymphodepletion. It could be CAR T impact. It could be infection, you know, growing infection. Um, so neutropenia in this setting, I would actually explore with a broader mind, with broader differential. You know, the first and foremost, the common that we want to make sure that there is no disease progression. You know, mantle cell lymphoma, if progress in a bone marrow, you might have cytopenias. Second, that in few cases that we have found CMV reactivation, that can drive cytopenias. If you treat CMV, cytopenia gets better. The third, of course, we want to make sure that this is not a secondary bone marrow malignancy, right? These patients have been through multiple lines of therapies in the past, um, having a therapy-related myelodysplastic syndrome or therapy-related acute myeloleukemia is always a possibility, especially as we were discussing in older individual, you know, their bone marrow reserve, their risk factors are different, so that should be ruled out. So if you have ruled out all these major factors, then you can actually treat you know, neutropenia like many other neutropenic fever that you would treat, right? So you can make sure that they're covered with broad-spectrum antibiotics. There are no cultures, there are no infections, and blood cultures are negative. There are no nidus anywhere of infections. If you've ruled out all these infections, then you can actually use growth factors. Uh, this is a myeloid malignancy. You would not hurt, and growth factor is a reasonable choice. Many of the centers immediately after CAR T-cell therapy, they're a little bit hesitant using growth factors because there is always a potential to have worse CRS and ICANS. But that is more with GMCSF rather than GC GCSF. But that's something to keep in mind. Let's go on to the next question. Here, uh, a practicing oncologist asks, I'm interested in patient-reported outcomes following CAR T-cell therapy. What do your, our patients say to us about the impact of CAR T-cell therapy on quality of life? And what can community oncologists do? What can we do within community settings to better support patients? That's a great uh, area which is evolving uh, in CAR T-cell therapy, especially patient-reported uh, quality of life outcomes. And we have one abstract uh, about lysocell um, uh, looking at the patient-reported outcomes in a mantle lymphoma cohort. Uh, on Transcend NHL001 study, and it showed that in all segment of the standard health-related quality of life outcome um, assessment, 
there was uh, improvement all across the board. What my patients say to me in, in, in my practice is, you know, if their pain is better, um, a majority of the symptoms like B symptoms, they have improved. Um, and of course, you know, they can go back to their life after a couple of months of CAR T cell therapy. And the most important part, they say that they don't have to take a continuous therapy. This is one-time infusion. So that is a main uh, change uh, in, in, in their life. And that definitely improves quality of life in this patient population. But uh, for CAR-T, being an intense treatment, and we discussed about, you know, in, in process of the CAR-T cell, including collection, um, bridging therapy, CAR-T cell infusion, staying at the, the um, a different location, you know, where the advanced treatment center is located, uh, this whole, you know, uh, uh, portion, about two to three months, is vital. You need a caregiver support. There is a risk of cytokine release syndrome as well as ICANS up to eight weeks post CAR T setting. So these patients have restrictions. So, you know, they need 24/7 support. They cannot drive. You know, so the caregiver support is very, very important for this patient population. The next question was: Is it possible to predict which patients might not respond to or relapse after CAR? And how do we think about salvage therapy uh, for patients with mantle cell lymphoma if they relapse following CAR T cell therapy? Oh, I can't say if I, I can, I wish that I can predict those patients who progressed after CAR T cell therapy. Uh, but obviously those with high risk features, right? Um, their, their progression-free survival is shorter compared to the low risk patients. And high risk, we discussed, you know, uh, high risk MIPI to, you know, blastoid and TP53 mutated patients. The other one, you know, um, uh, that factor that has come up uh, is use of bendamustine. And bendamustine, as we all know, is widely used all in all lymphomas, actually, you know, diffuse lords to follicular to mantle cell lymphoma. And we also know that bendamustine is very lymphotoxic. So many of the centers, and that's why the partnership is important, is when to use bendamustine. And we restrict using bendamustine, if possible, at least within a month of collection. Ideally, within six months, if we can avoid use of bendamustine, that will give you healthier T cells to kind of get ready, you know, a, a very healthy product, uh, which have a better outcome. But clearly, in a real-world setting, people have seen this, that if the patient has seen bendamustine within six months of collection, their progression-free survival is shorter, their also overall response rate is, you know, inferior compared with the other patients. The other, you know, like many of the cancers, uh, if uh, the mantle cell lymphomas, they don't have or low CD19 expression, you know, many times we would like to check, you know, before uh, starting the CAR T cell therapy that they have. Uh, CD19 expression is not universal, preferred, especially if they've seen CD19 before. Usually in mantle, there are no approved agent, but if they were on a clinical trial uh, with CD19 product and now they are going through a CAR T. So in that setting, I would prefer having a CD19 uh, checked. But as such, post-core progressors, you know, we have very few treatment options. The best, in my opinion, is, you know, clinical trials, especially bispecific uh, uh, therapy. The, uh, the, the way that I think post-core progressors is we can attack lymphoma, so to speak, in a two different way. One is we go straight to the lymphoma and use an anti-lymphoma therapy, and second, is if we have seen exhaustion of this T cell, whether we can re-engage them on, on the fight with lymphoma. That's how I think. And one of the one of the way you could you could approach this is immune modulation, whether that would trigger 
the um, the T cell activation. And one of the one of the drug that I like in post CAR T setting more so is LEN. Uh, I have you successfully used LEN in combination with rituximab and have seen great responses in that setting. Again, it's a sequencing because this patient already has C seen CD920. Now they're post-CAR, so they have seen CD20, and now you're going back to CD20, but with an immune modulation, and you might see a better response. And that has transcribed in a clinical setting. Thank you, uh, Amit, for these very uh, important thoughts on, on the challenging subject of managing CAR-T toxicity and uh, clinical considerations. In this segment, we're gonna be discussing future considerations for optimizing the use of CAR-T cell therapy in patients with mantle cell lymphoma. We understand that there's a lot of operational considerations around CAR T cell therapy that impact both our ability to deploy it broadly as well as for patients to access it. The first is that there's parts that the community oncologist really needs to buy in and actively participate in and understand. Um, there's going to be discussions with patients around cost in terms of both getting into an academic center, uh, all of the ramifications regarding insurance and access and equity that we really grapple with. The second is the, those logistical bits about how to get patients referred and seen in a timely fashion, particularly in the context of what can be aggressive disease. And the third is discussions around the potential for not just adverse events for toxicities, but an understanding of the potential severity um, or even life-threatening nature of some of these toxicities. In phase two, we think about the actual manufacturing process, and that includes both getting patients A4E successfully and understanding that the manufacturing process itself is an imperfect one and that sometimes product can come back out of specifications, and how do you navigate out-of-spec products? How do you manage the actual work of getting patients to and from a center for apheresis and subsequent physician visits? And then there's the parts at the treatment center and at the point of therapy including trying to access doctors and trying to get on a wait list, understanding that there's only apheresis slots, a lot of fiddly bits around managing to get our patients access to really critically important therapy. So with that as preamble, let's turn to the questions that we've received from practicing oncologists in this area. The first question we received was, administration of currently available CAR T cell therapy is complex and can take an extended time to complete. What are your thoughts on how delivery of CAR T cell therapy may be optimized in the future? Uh, that's a challenging situation with CAR T cell therapy, the logistics, as we talked about, right? And there are multi, it's multiple steps in that collection. First is referral, then collection, bridging, LDC, followed by CAR T cell infusion. So there are, because of the multiple steps, and it's a very expensive treatment. So the insurances, they have a different way to kind of come to an agreement with the institution. So there are steps involved in single case agreement, especially in US, that might actually impact the total timeline of CAR T cell therapy. The other thing that you also highlighted was out of spec products, right? And that also depends on what therapies they have gotten before. We talked about bendamustine uh, and whether that has any impact on the CAR T cells. So because of many moving parts in the whole process, whether we can tidy up the process a little bit, right? It starts from early referral to whether we can establish with different insurances a smooth process, not only with the insurances, but also within the institutions. The other that comes up, which many of uh, these uh, novel treatments that are in right now clinical trials is, 
whether we can completely bypass that process and whether we can have those cells ready over the shelf, right? So we can focus on various immune cells. We can focus on T cells, you know, uh, over the shelf CAR-T, allogenic CAR-T cell therapy. We could have um, activated NK cell therapy or CAR-NK cell therapy. All of these strategies, they are currently in the clinical trial. Uh, there are some early promising results, but as we go further, we'll have more mature data and outline that how they're effective and where we can utilize them in the whole treatment paradigm of mantle cell lymphoma, and as a matter of fact, all B-cell lymphomas. Yeah, the allocar data is interesting, right? The, the There is activity both for allocar-T and allocar-NK. Cellular persistence has been a challenge for both of those areas, and the intensity of conditioning that can be required to try to get any measure of persistence can add additional toxicity. One area of research that I'm interested in is trying to build a faster autocar-T and there's a lot of interesting work being done. We're going to see one abstract at ASH this year from Nirav Shah looking at an adaptive manufacturing process that gets that vein-to-vein -vein time, the time between apheresis and reinfusion, down from the approximately four weeks that we experience for most uh, currently approved CAR-T products down to eight days in that case. So I, you brought up a good point about allogeneic CAR-T cell therapy and their persistence. And there are many strategies being evaluated in clinical trial multiple infusions, whether that has uh, any role in persistence of this, or having them in combination with interleukin-based therapy and see whether we can push that persistence longer. So it is going to be very exciting next several years to see how this all, you know, uh, uh, pan out uh, for, for various B-cell lymphomas. Yeah, the pace of progress is really breathtaking. Let's go on to the second question we received from oncologists in the community. This one reads, our patient population is largely rural, and it can be challenging for them to access CAR-T cell therapy through their nearest specialist center. Will CAR-T cell therapy ever be administered within the community oncology setting? And if so, what developments are going to be required to ensure optimal patient care and safety in such a non-specialist setting? This is a great question, and you know, as we know all across the board, the uptake of CAR-T is not as we want. And part of the reason is, as uh, you know, um, the question actually lays out, that you know, whether we can administer in a community setting. It's, uh, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge because as we all know that we are all covered, uh, any cell therapy is covered under the, the regulations of FACT. We have regular FACT inspections and make sure that we are in alignment with those guidelines. And that is true uh, to execute such a high-intensive therapy for the patients. Not only that, the center is REM certified. Um, so each personnel who are touching the cells are also REM certified. And that is key for the safety of the patients. Uh, to build the whole village, when I say about CAR T cell therapy in out in the community, is going to be a huge task. It is doable in some centers, which are large community centers. They have um, some of the cell therapy, especially transplant programs, up and running in the community centers. Those centers can probably execute, but for smaller centers, it would be challenging to kind of both meet the requirements for you know regulatory as well as REMS as well as the trained personnel for, for this patient population. So near future, I don't think so, but in, in long future, maybe there is a potential, uh, but uh, we will see whether the allogenic CAR-T or some of the other cell therapies with lower side effect profile can be rolled out if they get approved down the line. 
Let's go on to the third question we received, which is, as an oncologist in a specialist center, I, the person asking the question, I'm really interested in understanding whether CAR T-cell therapy for mantle cell lymphoma is likely to be implemented earlier in the treatment pathway in the future, and are there any data currently available to support this? So this is another evolving field um, for CAR T-cell therapy. As we know that in large cell lymphoma, it has definitely climbed the ladder from third-line setting to second-line setting and a first-line setting. We have not seen that yet in mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, mantle cell lymphoma still, it is in relapsed refractory setting, and majority of the patients are getting CAR T-cell therapy after they have progressed on BTK inhibitor. Um, how we can utilize this, whether we can design studies like we design in large cell lymphoma, um, going straight to the CAR-T compared to the aggressive therapy or using as a consolidation or using earlier, maybe in a first-line setting in a high-risk patient population, like we talked about, you know, high-risk MIPI, TP53 altered, pleomorphic or blastoid variant. Hopefully in future, we will see that, you know, climb of CAR-T cell therapy in mantle cell lymphoma it's way early in, in that, you know, phase uh, for mantis lymphoma right now. Yeah, it's a, it's, a very, uh, it's a very heady question being asked us and one that perhaps, you know, shows us the way forward. We recognize that there are these high-risk patient populations, and we know that current standards of care are insufficient in treating very high-risk disease, even in the first-line setting. Um, current, you know, research approaches like the ALR combination or VEN-based treatment, there's a lot of work being done in developing non-chemotherapy-based approaches. But I share your optimism that there could be a role for evaluating CAR T-cell therapy much earlier in the course of patients that are so underserved by current standards of care. So we've talked a lot together today, Ahmed, about mantle cell lymphoma. We've talked about standards of care for patients with relapse or refractory disease and identifying high-risk disease. We've talked about the role of CAR T-cell therapy in its current state and understanding of its toxicities, as well as the activity of CAR-T in this patient population. Talking through the toxicities both in the short and long term and how best community oncologists can understand these toxicities in a shared care model for high-risk patients, as well as how we can understand our current and future logistical barriers as we work to try to get more patients access to such powerful therapy. Thank you, Dr. Mehta, for all of your insights shared with us today, and thank you for joining us in this activity. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Matthew Matasar and Dr. Amit Kumar Mehta, and thank you to our audience for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on hematological malignancies, CAR T-cell therapy and related topics on Touch Oncology at touchoncology.com.